How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hey, thanks for hitting that play button. Welcome everyone once again to the Towards Data Science podcast. My name is Jeremy and I'm part of the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program along with Ed, who's also gracing us with his presence here today. Hey guys. And Ed, so you're kind of ahead of all of us here because you actually know today's guest. You were interviewed by him, right? That's right. I got to chat with Sunny Am on the Chai Time Data Science podcast earlier. So this is a bit of a double header for me, but maybe you can introduce him more fully. Yeah, absolutely. So Sanyam Bhutani, apart from being the host of the Chai Time Data Science Podcast, is now a machine learning engineer over at H2O.ai. Um, he's also a top 1% Kaggler. If you're listening, though, you might actually know him better through his blog posts, which he's generally quite well known for. Um, Sanyam's really connected to some, some truly world-class data scientists, not only through his work, but through his podcast. Um, he's got a lot to say about breaking into the data science community, networking, um, and some of the best ways to leverage things like Kaggle. So let's just jump right into it. Sanyam, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, Sharpest Minds has been one of my machine learning heroes company, and I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Well, super excited to have you. Obviously, we've been following you on Twitter for a long time, and it's it's nice to finally make this connection. Um, now, you're obviously a, a super talented machine learning engineer, data scientist. Um, among other things, you are a top 1% Kaggler. Uh, but I think something that really stands out is your work around data science communication through your blog posts and then most notably the, uh, the Chai Time Data Science Podcast, which you host in addition to everything else. <laughs> so one of the things I do want to make sure we cover then in this conversation are some of your thoughts around Kaggle and how data science competitions com compare to kind of data science in the real world and so on. But maybe it would be helpful to just start with a bit of background on your data science journey because I think there's also an interesting story there about self-study and leveraging things like MOOCs to their fullest potential. Um, can, can you walk us through that and how you got into data science? Sure. So uh, I first I'd mentioned that I consider myself as a machine learning and Kaggle noob, really, because I'm just fresh out of college and just starting with all this work. But to give you an idea of how I got my break into the field was I was going through my undergrad degree. I, I was pursuing a computer science undergrad degree. And I figured I could either continue ranting about the system that the syllabus is too old, the professors maybe don't know the latest. Uh, open source frameworks that are coming out or I could go out and fill the gaps instead. So I signed up for any or all of the courses that I could find of all uh, different directions. So I did a bunch of IoT courses, machine learning courses, uh, embedded system courses, uh, because that's what a computer system is. It's, it's this umbrella. And uh, eventually I, I found my interest in machine learning and uh, did a lot of courses there. So I counted more than 50 MOOCs that I completed and uh, these nano degrees specifically of Udacity, I, I did uh, courses from all, all websites, uh, Udacity, Coursera, Udemy and uh, the Udacity nano degrees have these projects as they call it, 
And as I was going through these projects and talking to my peers on the Slack communities, we started coming up with project ideas, which eventually grew to an extent that people actually started paying for me for for uh, doing those projects. Amazing. And that's how I got my first job, quote unquote, contractual work. When in college, uh, while working from five to nine, because we had nine to five college, which I barely attend, anyways. <laughs> so, so you basically took it upon yourself to create your own degree because 50 courses is like, that's about as many courses as you take in a university degree. So you kind of took a parallel university degree that you created yourself. It wasn't uh, like, I wasn't thinking of it as a university degree, like many people quote it uh, as so. It was more for me, how do I find the latest, most interesting stuff that would really be an education to me, not just doing, as I think it was mentioned in one of your tweets or blog posts, pattern matching really just pattern matching how do I get the top grades or how do I get the best marks in college and not just educating myself. Well, and how, so for a lot of people, I think who are going through an undergrad right now or a master's program, some kind of like official capital letterized university program. um, I think it it can be hard to imagine like, what is it that I'm missing? What is it that I'm not learning um, in this program? Because surely it's preparing for the real world. What were some of the biggest differences between, or, or let's say missing ingredients in terms of what you studied in class versus what you had to learn on your own? So one of the things that I was fortunate enough through these online courses or I got exposed to the global community because we would have people from all continents through all walks of life, people who were like senior software engineers, machine learning engineers looking to become deep learning engineers while I was doing the deep learning nano degree. And uh, just talking to them because I was pretty frank that, hey, I'm an undergrad. I don't know what code reviews are. Could you please tell me about that? How, what do you mean when you're shipping a model, what, what does production mean? And all of these things that my uh, sort of batchmates at college didn't know about and neither did the professors, honestly. So that unique uh, exposure, really. So, you know, um, I had a similar experience talking to a university professor a couple of weeks ago. And he was asking me basically what could possibly a college, what, what could be missing possibly from college? And I started listing things off. And the first thing I listed off was Git. And he was like, I don't know Git. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, oh, my God, this is exactly true. You're kind of getting the blind leading the blind in university. Um, People at these positions are kind of separated out from the real world. And no one talks about these experiences. How do you negotiate a salary? You're going to college to essentially get a job. You don't know how to negotiate a salary. You don't know how to make a switch from a job, when to make a switch. All these things, it's it's really amazing how much we miss out while going uh, for it. They're, they're all the basics are, are, are missing because universities just don't measure themselves based on this. Like they just don't really measure themselves like oh we were more successful this year because more of our graduates get hired no university does this well and and i hate to fall in the trap of uh what sanyam you flagged at the beginning of complaining about you know how universities underprepare people but i think there is a sense in which a, a lot of universities maybe not all there are you know exceptional programs like waterloo purdue does a great job too but by and large, universities seem to want to have it both ways where you know, they're, they are really happy to sit back and smile and nod while everybody says, of course, you have to do an undergrad and a master's to get lined up for a successful career. And then you wrap up your degree program. And then all of a sudden you find out, no, if you read the fine print, this was all just some <laughs> self-exploration, personal growth exercise. 
um, that uh, maybe you wouldn't have paid $20,000 a year for had you known that it was all about yeah. self-enlightenment. Um, so, so okay, you got to that point where you're, you're now kind of doing a little bit more of that self-learning. Um, presumably, there was also a jump then from self-learning to actually doing some of this contract work too, right? I mean, that's not the same thing as Kaggle. What were some of the differences there? So to give you how the bridge happened was uh, my college also had these uh, student clubs and I actually went to all of those uh, participated in all the projects and eventually I got bored because they were just doing the same repetitive thing. And then I was continuously looking for projects. Uh, so how the jump happened was uh, people were giving me a month long project and I said, um, okay, this is interesting, but I can't just commit to that. And then I realized that people are actually wanting to pay for that. And that was really interesting because I was in my pre-final year. Uh, so I actually sort of got my first job when even not opting for campus placements. Well, and then cool. it became a habit because I really wanted a GPU to be able to do Kaggle, which everyone was talking about. So I did a lot of uh, consulting work because I couldn't have a job job while being in college. So you wanted to get a job so you could afford a GPU? Yeah, that was the blind aim to get a good enough hardware setup to be able to do deep learning. That's what everyone told me that you need a good uh, graphic card. Uh, so I just chased that goal initially. That's really cool. And then, the, the, so the Kaggle stuff came actually after then you started uh, doing consulting work. Yeah, so uh, I was doing all of these online courses and then eventually I landed on Fast.ai, which is the only course I recommend to anyone. And out there, uh, Jeremy Howard, who's the founder and teacher of the course, he talks a lot about Kaggle. And then I figured, okay, maybe Kaggle isn't that hard as I assumed it to be. And that's how I eventually got started on Kaggle. So what was your journey to the top 1% like? Mm. So even though the top 1% sounds like a really crazy number, it's about if you actually make it to the experts tier, which is just two bronze medals you're almost in the top two or 3%. So it was really about uh, setting the platform as a learning platform, not really as a competing platform. So all of these activities that I did, maybe not the initial consulting one because I was really chasing money, not chasing uh, interesting projects, but after the, uh, that changed after a while. So it was really, okay, this is a image competition. I remember my first competition was an image one. And I really don't know how to do uh, image classification properly on uh, the competition scale, which had about 10 million images, a crazy amount. And it was really, how do I uh, use Kaggle as a learning experience? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Kaggle is, I think, in a way built partly for that, like to help get people <laughs> slowly ease them in. So what did you find? Like, did you start with like, some easy stuff like Titanic stuff and then work your way up from there. Like how did you structure your learning at Kaggle? So by the time my dad actually was kind enough to help me get this laptop, which had a 1070, it's an eight uh, gigabit graphic card. Uh, and at the same time, there was this competition by Google called quick draw doodle. Uh, you have to basically predict what people are doodling and it had a crazy amount of images, about 10 million images. So I was like, Let's do it. This this is something that I could probably nail because I have a good graphic card, uh, at least compared to my batchmates. And so I jumped right into the competition that I saw was the most difficult one. <laughs> so you went right to the deep end. You weren't yep. like, oh, I'm going to play around with it. No, 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 no. no. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to jump right in the deep end and, and yeah. 
go what were, what were some of the things that you learned from participating in those competitions that you weren't able to pick up just from, say, fast AI? Uh, so it's uh, really a tough competition because doing at least uh, when it's in the heat, you submit to the leaderboard, there's a live leaderboard, and you start falling down the leaderboard every morning you wake up. So you may, oh. might have submitted uh, something in the night that got you to a medal zone and you wake up, you're nowhere in the medal zone. So oh, yeah. really being patient and uh, learning rigorously, being able to do a lot of experiments and knowing that those might fail. So you mm -hmm. might be doing a lot of experiments. There's a lot of discussion happening. And many of those ideas probably wouldn't work. I feel like there's a real metaphor there for the uh, the life of a data scientist in general, where you know, like th there's a there's a sense in which I, th I think I've seen this a couple of times. People, especially beginners, will tend to start off by you know importing random forests or, or whatever else. They'll try to fit it and maybe do some hyperparameter tuning, and then they'll kind of consider the result they get at the end to be final. And they sort of stop. They don't. They don't think about like okay, future engineering data augmentation. Um, you know, <laughs> trying to get more fancy with that. So, like, what are what are some of the? Can you describe some of the moments where that sort of thing happened, and like how you pushed through? Sure. Uh, so, my initial competition, uh, you get medals when you're in the top ten percent. And in the first, uh, I was aiming for basically top forty percent. We got to the top thirty-five, which was really great for me. And the thing I realized was one of the most underrated things in on Kaggle is uh, the discussions and teaming up with people you don't know, but you familiar with them through all of the uh, discussions, maybe from the forums and all. So you get to pick their brains on how they approach a problem. Plus, you also understand you get access to their code, which I think is one of the greatest things. So uh, all of these experiences and then just reading a lot of discussions, going through the archived uh, competition. So when a competition ends, many people share the winning solutions. And those are a goldmine in my opinion. If, even if you don't have the time to compete, just going through them is a really great way of learning. So I went a lot uh, through all of these discussions, uh, tried replicating them by myself. So I wanted to replicate a research paper, which was impossible for me initially. And I tried replicating the solutions, which were much easier. Uh, so just these experimentations, I thought these helped me improve my skills a lot, especially with the frameworks and trying all different things at once. That's one of the greatest things about machine learning is how open people are in that way. It's almost like, you know, if, if you have a winning poker player showing you what his hand was, it's like incredibly generous. The funny thing is people are paying. So there's a winning prize of 10 to 50,000 to highest being $1 million and you essentially getting that amount of knowledge for free. That's how I look at it. That's exactly right. Which I do think, I think what's really interesting about the, the space around MOOCs, Kaggle competitions, that sort of thing is the, the fact that the, uh, the content is so freely available now creates a competitive environment among applicants that's very different from what it was just 10 years ago. Like 10 years ago, it's like, okay, if you can afford to take these courses, then you have a competitive advantage that will prove decisive. Nowadays, the question is around motivation. Can you actually mm -hmm. go from this sort of like unstructured learning environment where everything's in the air, but it's free to, okay, now how do I map that, that information in my brain? So one question I would have for you, because you're somebody who's so obviously successful at this, like 
How did you motivate yourself to learn? Was it just this innate drive and you can't explain it? Or were there tricks that you had to use to kind of keep yourself accountable? Uh, so one of the tricks that Ed even mentioned on my podcast was uh, just tweeting these things out in public and being accountable on social media because my batchmates didn't understand what things I was studying. They didn't have any idea of what a CNN was and there were no major libraries back in the day. So for me, uh, the learning was more of a driving force. How do I learn something to an extent uh, that really satisfies my uh, curiosity for it? And that's how I eventually ended up pursuing all of these courses. There was no structure around it, just trying to understand something properly, maybe in the theoretical aspect first, which I don't really recommend. And later in the code aspect of things, because now really, in my opinion, the cutting edge is shifting towards software engineering uh, mm-hmm. for data science even. Can you unpack that a little bit? So, Because um, I, I know we, we've talked a lot about that theme on this podcast. I think something that we could do better, though, is explain... Um, exactly what I'm about to ask you to explain, which is what what exactly does it mean that data science and machine learning are moving in the direction of software engineering? So uh, this opinion of mine also originates from FASD.A, so that allows me to also say the course once again. But um, instead of being able to understand all of those 50 lines of mathematical equations, which probably you would never tell a business person, how do you make it a nice experience for the business person to be able to interpret? Or how do you really ship it fast enough in a dynamic environment? For example, uh, take consulting where people wouldn't even take your call if you say it'll take more than a week uh, to give them the end result. And that really needs you to be a good enough software programmer, have a good local repository of all of your utility scripts, for example, even for Kaggle competition. So uh, I've been lucky enough to talk to many top Kagglers and they have a huge private repository where they keep all of their Mm. utility scripts. So they constantly mention that they've grown as a programmer as well uh, while doing these. Yes. uh, Back in the day, like all the smart people would have a literal library of books that they would refer to. Nowadays, all the smart people have private GitHub repositories of tools that they know and they, they can use. And what you're saying around like, yeah, can you deliver stuff fast within a week? You have to be a decent software engineer to be able to, to do that and understand iteration. And, and the stuff around um, how do you show this to someone in a way that's packageable, if you can make a nice web UI, if you can make a really yeah. simple web page, even if it's super dumb, it's just like a few fields you enter in, that's it. That's all you need. It's interactive. You, you put in the, the question, you get the response so much easier than like 50 lines of math or a thousand lines of code. Yep. And to a computer science student, as as I was, it might sound way more cooler to be able to talk about that 0.5% more accuracy that I got. But in consulting, the person really didn't care as long as it did the job, it was good enough for them. So this reminds me of um, a theme that comes up over and over when I talk to Sharpest Minds mentees and they'll, um, you know, they'll they'll tell me like, okay, I'm, I'm working on this project. And um, how do I like? How do I know? And this is a weird thing about data science. You can always push it further. You can always increase that that uh, you know F one score, that AUC score, that accuracy, whatever you're interested in. You can always make it go up by putting more time into it. So when do you stop? And yeah. as somebody who has experience answering exactly that question, like, can you walk us through a little bit? Like, how should we think about the stopping condition when we're working on real world projects for real companies? Uh, so. 
how i got uh, sort of pushed into that was i had a serious contract which i never really read before signing and then i realized if i don't make the deadline it's a pretty serious contract that could land me in californian jail i mean of course that wouldn't happen but that's how i got pushed into it and so i realized okay uh, they need to maybe create a character recognizer and i shouldn't use deep learning just type basic techniques this is a example project that i worked on uh, and what can i do to ship it in under a week how do i make it happen in under a week another thing how do you do that on your pet projects would be maybe make yourself accountable publicly as it says just tweet out that by the end of the week i'll have a demo of xyz project ready and just putting out the mvp right in in a sense that it just works uh, maybe barely minimally but having the baseline ready I don't know, man. I like your idea of, um, of imagine that you're going to get thrown into prison after <laughs> yeah. if if you don't deliver this. Then, <laughs> then what are you what are you going to do? Honestly, um, for some people, that's probably a good motivator, and it's definitely the right timeline and the right forcing function. You want to be forcing yourself. It's also related to some of the the constraints. I know on you know Jeremy Howard through Fast AI talks a lot about the idea of a different kind of constraint, not time, but compute. Yep. Which in a, in a way are equivalent, but um, really, like what you're expressing is just the same thing. You're gonna have to come up with more pragmatic solutions if you tell yourself, "I only have a week to do this," and that could sometimes be yep. good. Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, really an ingredient that's missing. I think for a lot of people too is like this, just this idea that everything's open ended. It's it's really tricky though not to go for that extra percentage because you're comparing your model and you want to call it the state of the art at least for once in a month before. another company completely throws you off it but again it's it's you need to find the balance if you have to work on a bunch of ideas yeah by the way one thing i, I did want to make sure we touch on too um cuz i think this has to do with, it's a little bit less technical as an issue but i think it's it's equally important for data scientists and that's this idea of of building a personal brand um yeah. so one thing that's interesting about your case too is you, you are based in india yet you've made this worldwide impact through your data science work your blogging your your podcast um and you've connected with some really extraordinary machine learning developers around the world. Um so I think there's an interesting story here about the power of remote networking and maybe just networking in general. Have have you gotten yourself to that point in, in getting so plugged into the data science ecosystem internationally? So uh, to me it was really about geeking out. That's how I signed up for the computer science analytic uh, course in college. And my batchmates unfortunately didn't know what machine learning was back in the day. It wasn't the sexiest course to be pursuing. uh so i ended up talking to people on slack communities on fastai forums just spending a wild uh, amount of time there I, on fastai forums specifically i think i spent about 7 day reading time so just talking to people on there eventually i uh, started pitching my ideas doing discussions eventually doing calls and that's how i made friends or peers globally and these would be people to different countries and I never actually thought that I'm making a global connection or such. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to find people who might be helpful and might like to talk about these silly project ideas that I had. So letting yourself really be passion driven um, and in a way authentic. I mean, it, like your your interest was genuine, and that's yep. yeah, yeah. I think that that's one of the the hidden the hidden kind of networking secrets, I guess, that a lot of people overlook is like they network with a purpose in mind. They're like, I want to get that job, or I want to <laughs> get that that next. you know thing but it, it, i i think yeah the the power of this really is if you're genuinely interested in what you do it will come across i didn't 
know what the term networking meant because I was in my pre-final year and they mentioned it in one of the courses during the final year. I think it was some orientation and it was just talking to people really, which is <laughs> but just talking to people and then uh, that's how the interviews also got started. I was incredibly lucky. I was like, uh, I mentioned to a friend that, hey, you have a really nice experience. Would you like to in, uh, share a blog interview about it? And they were like, sure. And that turned into this uh, series of interviews that I was really lucky to be able to share. Real networking doesn't look like networking and doesn't feel, <laughs> doesn't feel like networking. Yeah. And in, in fact, um, that's, it's funny. Is one of the things that, that we had to learn the hard way is that conferences don't always have the same kind of value that you know, a, a lot of people ascribe them. Like it, you, you network in weird ways nowadays. It's like it's social media, mostly almost. Twitter is, is huge. And yep. conferences are like the dance clubs of networking. <laughs> like if, if you want, you know, quick hookups, you go to a conference and it can sometimes work for you. But if you want to create real meaningful relationships with people, which is what you ultimately want to do, like if you're building a career from the start, like you want to build something that lasts a long time and that compounds with value over a long time. Like there is no substitute for repeatedly talking to the same people and helping them when they need help. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, I've never even been to a conference uh, till date. Yeah. So I don't really know what that's like, but I could talk about talking to people online, talking on forums, talking on Twitter, LinkedIn. And, and you use tw- do you use Twitter a lot to uh, to do networking, sort of like behind the scenes through DMs and stuff? I talk to a lot of people and uh, many people actually reach out to me for just uh, asking, seeking advice. And I always try to help out anyone that I can because I'm completely online taught is what I say. I I haven't mentioned on my resume that I'm a CS engineer just because I don't know the courses thoroughly. Yeah. So any online platform, I try to uh, spend a lot of time. These days, I, I was spending around more than 6 to 12 hours every day online, just helping people in different communities. I want to say something here too, which is that for folks who are listening and who are like, oh, I'm too embarrassed to reach out to people for help. Most people are more open to reach outs than you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have like a thoughtful enough reach out. Like don't just reach out, you know, every once in a while I'll get a message that's just like, hi, sir. And then nothing else. Like, I don't know what to yeah. do with that. But if you have some basic description of what you need or what you're looking for, people like Sinyam are, and, and us like myself and Jeremy are very open to helping folks out through Twitter or through LinkedIn or through anything else. So feel free to reach out. Anyone who has their DM open in my opinion, left it there for a reason. Yes. And yes. if you don't think cold messaging or cold emailing doesn't work, I actually did 25 blog interviews and I've published 17 podcast interviews, which just happened mostly through that. Yeah. And I, I think it, it, there's this universal economic truth too, uh, which, which sort of points in the direction of saying, look, if, if you're interested in, in breaking into a space, doing something hard, doing something that the average person does not succeed at doing, um, and you see something like this, you see something that makes you go, oh, that's awkward. I don't want to do that. Oh, there's an uphill, <laughs> you know, there's a social penalty. Social penalties are some of the best things ever because they're very easy to overcome. All you have to do is suspend your ego for a short period and, and risk embarrassment. Um, so it's not much effort and they're barriers that most people let stand in their way. So it's an easy way for you to gain a competitive advantage. Just be the person who sends that DM, be the person who, who requests that coffee chat um, I think that's a yeah really cool kind of under leveraged thing. For sure. And in retrospect, that's how it got started with machine learning as well. So 
my college was primarily focused on full stack uh, roles as campus placements so none of my friends were actually interested in doing these courses i signed up for the deep learning nano degree which i remember was somewhere in the 500 to 700 dollar range and people were just uh, mocking me throughout in college that this crazy dude just signed up for such an expensive online course and i i i did it because i saw value in it but no one was ready to sign up for it back in the day and now is it different is it different now uh now it's uh, so every second person that i talk to my juniors have actually done a nano degree online yes which which by the way and and like okay so so the principle still holds now that everyone's doing it you probably shouldn't do it and and i think this is like it's or, or you probably shouldn't do just that. right sorry yes yeah. yeah sorry yeah absolutely that that was far too strong yeah but, but i i still think the general principle holds like the, part of the problem is um there's um not only not only is this economic truth a, an issue but also when you look up to data scientists you look up uh, someone like to someone like Sanyam um and you kind of go like okay what did they do to get there like it, it's always there's always a risk that that's slightly out of date and in in this world where yeah. MOOCs are constantly evolving like um you know uh, uh, 3 years ago nobody had a nano degree and i would look yeah. at people like that like yeah go for it like you got this and now it's sort of like you got to do a bit more you got to do like Sanyam you were saying the the software engineering side building projects um yeah what what are some of the other shifts that you've seen over the last 3 years or so as you've gotten more and more into this um so talking more about college uh, people really didn't in my college at least do as much open source work uh, they weren't as many uh, technical bloggers or aspiring technical bloggers so people have really started to identify that a technical blog is maybe slightly better than a github repo because no one wants to read your code and understand what it's doing rather than a well documented uh, blog post which in my opinion is better than a sciency research paper which again has its own entry barrier even if it's on archive so people really sharing knowledge more openly with a goal to get a break into the field with the goal to be understood too yeah Because that's a difference, like a bit of a difference between, like the scientific paper, the scientific community, which, and I can I can speak to this because I, I was a part of it for a long time, and so was Jeremy. But um, you write, you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jeremy did. That's I, fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. People are writing much more to be understood and doing a much better job of it these days than when you write research papers that were. just math and equations and the open source code that came with it was broken somehow one of the thing that kagglers have really started to document at least a bunch of them is failed experiments so as a data scientist or as an experimenter you might do a lot of experiments how do you justify spending 6 months of time without any result so even documenting those even though it might be embarrassing people have actually started doing that also that's amazing i didn't know that Yeah and I think the one of the the big at least the big things that shines through uh, in this conversation so far just is is the importance of taking that like mile high view and asking yourself like what's the point of the activity that I'm going through right now if I'm writing a paper like is the point to sound sciency or which I think a lot of academics are literally like that's kind of the mindset is there's a culture of sounding sciency rather than making sense rather than communicating the idea you're trying to communicate yeah. um or or as you were saying you know the, the point is to build something the point is to get a product shipped quickly 
um, asking yourself like, whoa, hold on. Am I just like mimicking behavior? Am I just acting this out? Or am I actually working on a skill, building something concrete and valuable? Um, sort of an interesting question. Maybe people should uh, ask themselves a bit. And to linger on to that for a bit longer, uh, people, many people seek a master's degree after completing their bachelor's. Mm. And they again sort of do this pattern matching. How did people get into a master's program, which was by writing research papers? Maybe I should write another research paper. But in my opinion, really what you need to do is communicate your passion for the uh, specialization that you want to pursue, be it through Kaggle for data science or just writing a bunch of uh, blog posts on, on your projects. Yes. Yeah, the passion factor is like so easy to, to overlook, especially when you're, mm -hmm. you're focused on a world where it, genuinely companies are asking very cookie cutter questions, leak code, hacker rank questions. So like, yeah, yeah it's so easy to get lost in the <laughs> kind of just the, the dance of like doing all the conventional things. Uh, one thing I do want to make sure we ask, because um, when we were talking just before the podcast, you mentioned you were going to start. Uh, a new job at h2o.ai. Now, by the time this podcast comes out, you will be on that job. Um, yeah. But can you tell us a little bit about the the interview process and how how you landed the job, like what that felt like? Uh, I'm not sure what part of the interview process is under NDA, but I could also talk about the AI residency that I interviewed for because uh, I did talk to them about the NDAs and all. So I'll be starting a machine learning engineer and uh, AI content creator role at h2o.ai India. And I, I'm really lucky that uh, I actually got this opportunity. I, I was doing all of these online aspects without any hope of getting a job eventually. But again, doing all of these things online actually uh, led people to be able to identify me as the person who's sharing these interviews, uh, yeah. working on Kaggle competitions. Um, but I, I'm not sure about uh, the interview process, what I'm allowed to talk about. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I think the personal brand building is actually itself kind of a, a hidden gem. Like, obviously, everyone's going to have their own special way of doing this. Not everyone can do podcasting and, and blog posts and all <laughs> that stuff. But but it certainly is one way that people have succeeded. Um, what are some of the things you found, like, when you write blog posts, um, what are some of the topics that you find most helpful in communicating? And, like, how would you recommend somebody start a blog post if, if or, or a blog series if that's how they're they're hoping to get some traction? Uh, so I'd also give a shout out to Rachel Thomas's advice on how to get started on blogging. That's something that I continually keep referring to even today while writing a blog post. How I write blog posts is I have cousins who are not from a science background and they act as my rubber duck. So I pitch them my uh, uh, blog post and they have to be interested because they're family. So they have to read through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, if they walk away with the understanding or if I check with them about, I question them on a topic and they may be able to understand it. So I've succeeded at that. So just being able to communicate the idea that you're writing down and again, setting a deadline for that. So during the beginning of the year, I uh, set my goal publicly that I want to write 50 blog posts a year, this year specifically, cool. which means that I have to write a blog post at least every week. So just having that deadline also in mind and that again pushed me to identifying uh, interesting ideas that people would read that aren't short enough that people would skip or long enough that people would get bored so finding the right uh, length of ideas and then how do you distill it or continuously refactor it before you're uh, ready to publish it that's awesome 
I love that advice about asking your non-technical cousins to read and understand your blog <laughs> before you publish them. Yeah, I think there's something to that. It's it, it's so easy to like because because when when you're a technical technically minded person, it's so easy to fall into this thing where you're like um, you're writing for technical people. But I think the the dark secret is even technical people um, don't want to be reading technical stuff. Like they want to be reading. <laughs> That's they, they so all, true. Yeah, they also want. They also read novels. They also read read. Uh, you know, I, I was gonna say uh, uh, People magazine or whatever. But but everybody wants to be tickled when they're reading something, and I think it's it's a great philosophy. Also, if you reach out to a person for their review on your blog post, probably they are better experienced than you. That's why you're reaching out to them. Instead, try reaching out to someone who doesn't understand the concept, because then you'll really understand if you're able to communicate it through the post or not. That's a great point, actually. Though, though I bet uh, sending it to people who are a little bit more advanced too can help with networking too. Maybe that's a, a sort of <laughs> Trojan horse strategy there. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, cool. Well, one thing I, I do want to touch on uh, before we wrap up too is a this is a question we normally ask to like engineers who are you know have a couple of years of experience to start to look at the landscape and they're like, okay, here are the trends. Here's where I think data science is heading. Now, you've actually interviewed so many people now that I do want to make sure we get your perspective on this too, the sort of dimensionality reduction of all this stuff that you've done. Um, what are the trends? Like, where do you see data science going from here, machine learning going from here? And, and then maybe what are you doing to stay ahead of those trends as well? Uh, to me, what I, I'll maybe talk about what I'd like to see is just everyday products getting better because that's what the end goal is with any technology, honestly. So how do I make Siri or Alexa do everything for me? How do I make my smart TV, which keeps crashing when I want to switch from Netflix to Amazon Prime without uh, crashing and making a movie experience seamless for me? So just these everyday experiences where uh, a self-driving car would drive you better while allowing you to work inside of it when getting to work. So not really in terms of tech, but how do these technologies enable us to be more creative? And for example, uh, so you've interviewed Christine Payne about her Musenet project. Mm -hmm. How do you communicate your thought in a abstract way with a project, for example, in the future that could just create it into a music? So every composer that I know of thinks of a musical beat in their head and then they try to get it down. So just AI maybe enabling everyone to be able to do that uh, and automating that process so that we can be more creative. Is I think I think what uh, the field would head to eventually. That's interesting. It, it, this this actually resonates with a lot of the conversations we've had, but it's a very novel take on the idea of reinventing what creativity means and like what level of abstraction do we solve problems on now? Because a lot of what historically have been through the starting levels of abstraction have been abstracted away. And um, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for making the time. This is actually a great chat. We covered so much ground. Um, I do want to take a second to plug a couple of links. Um, I, one in particular I want to make sure people get is your your Twitter, which um, is Bhutani Sanyam one I believe. Yep. Okay. And is there anything anywhere else that people can follow you on, on Medium or? Um, so just my Medium profile. Uh, if they search for Sanyam Bhutani, they should be able to find it. Okay, awesome. We'll make sure we include those links. I forgot my podcast as well. So just subscribe to Chai Time Data Science Podcast if you'd like to hear these interviews in an audio format. Yes, actually, for, for what it's worth, highly recommend as a as a uh, a, a listener myself. I, I actually really <laughs> appreciate those podcasts. So highly yes. recommend them. 
and as a as a guest myself, uh, they are, <laughs> they are they are really great. Definitely go check out those links. Um, Sanyam super active on Twitter on Medium. A lot of really high quality content. I I've been following for a long time. So um, anyway, big big ups for that. Um, thank you so much, Sanyam, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up later. Then. Thanks, Sanyam. Thanks so much for having me on the show, and uh, thanks again for uh, doing this podcast. Hasn't.